From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. Not so long ago, my wife and I had some friends over for dinner. The four of us sat around our table, eating, sipping at wine, and sharing about our lives. As is so often the case with these particular friends, our conversation turned to faith and spirituality and where we're finding God in our days. I'm reading a book I think you'll like, our one friend said. It's called The Diary of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, I've never encountered Jesus quite like this. A pause. It's written by a Jesuit, actually, he said. Well, those were the magic words. That Jesuit is Father Bill Kane, and he's my guest today. He's got a, a rather intimidating bio. He's a Peabody and Writers Guild award-winning screenwriter who has worked on several films and television shows, including Nothing Sacred, Thicker Than Blood, and more. His work for theater includes Equivocation, Nine Circles, Stand-Up Tragedy, and How to Write a New Book for the Bible. He received the 2009 and 2010 Steinberg American Theater Critics Association New Play Award, and is the only writer to receive the award in sequential years. There are more awards, too, and they're all impressive. Plus, he founded the Boston Shakespeare Company and has spent uh, not a few years teaching at nativity schools. But the reason he's on the podcast today isn't really for any of that. He's here because he wrote a book about Jesus Christ, a deeply moving and tender story that was so good it found its way into conversation around our dinner table. And I have to think that there's something there worth reflecting on. After all, isn't that the nature of the gospel? Jesus lived a life worth talking about, did things that were so remarkable. People told their friends, told their families, said, hey, you've got to check this guy out. He's going to change how you think about the world. St. Ignatius himself was so moved by the story of Christ. Not the scripture specifically, at least not at first, but by another author's account of Jesus. And that imaginative tale is what led the soldier turned saint to embrace a new life a new way of loving. For those of you familiar with the work of Father Greg Boyle, the Jesuit priest who founded Homeboy Industries, The Diary of Jesus Christ is particularly worth your time. Greg and Bill are longtime friends, and Greg wrote the introduction to Bill's book. But for me, as a reader of both Greg's work and Bill's book, it was hard not to see the connections. Bill has captured beautifully in his book the essence of the Christ that animates Father Boyle's words and work. And finally, Bill asked me about Star Wars, which longtime listeners will know is something I enjoy talking about. Now, here's my conversation with Father Bill Kane on his new book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. Bill Kane, welcome to AMDG. Thank you. Excited to talk to you today about uh, your really amazing book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. Um, and we'll get into it. But before we do that, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, about your life. What do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> what brought you, uh, what, what formed you uh, to eventually write this book? Um, okay, well, I am a film and TV writer, basically, and a teacher of middle school. So those are, those are the big formative element, elements in my life. Um, became a Jesuit when I was very young and um, was introduced to a form of meditation that's in St. Ignatius' Spiritual Exercises, 
where you are asked to picture yourself inside a gospel scene. And that came very easy to me, very, very easy, even when I was very young and first getting acquainted with what being a Jesuit was. But that kind of prayer came easy. Um, and over many years, uh, it developed into a sense of what it might like to have been Christ, facing the issues he did, meeting the people he did. Um, and that's many, many years of me meditation uh, began to bring up images of Christ and stories. And the entire book comes from that. Can you talk a little bit more about um, your own life of prayer or, or the uh, contemplative prayer practices that really helped you to, to hone the stories that are in this book? Um, I am not a really spiritual person. Let's begin there. <laughs> I'm a terrible retreat director. I would never be a spiritual director um, uh, and all of those things. But I love prayer and always have loved prayer. Um, I find it very easy to start with a gospel passage and fall inside of it and begin to experience both the tenderness of God um, and also the challenges that God that God presents, and above all, this is realized in um, in the person of Jesus. Um, so, the the book is the book comes out of my preaching. I got really really tired of explaining the gospel to people because we all know what the gospel is, and I got tired of illustrating the gospel of saying here are three stories that suggest what the passage might be about and decided to try to focus more on experiencing the gospel. What did it feel like? What did it sound like? And in the exercises, um, Ignatius says you should go to the place and you should see the place and you should hear the sounds of the place. He says you should kiss the seats that people are sitting on. That's how close you should be. And um, so in preaching, I would start a week ahead take a gospel passage and begin to sink into it. And bit by bit, it would form, um, to give you an example, something you had mentioned in a note that you wrote me, the call of, of the apostles. And so I'm sitting there spending time with the call of the apostles. And the things that, the thing that hits me is it's a list of names, you know, Simon, Andrew, as the names go on. And I begin to think, huh, if I were sitting there, what would I be thinking? I'd be thinking, will my name be called? Will I be next on the list? And as the list begins to come to an end and my name isn't on it, what would I feel? And that became a meditation on Magdalene, on Mary Magdalene. What would she have felt not hearing herself included in that list of names? Um, so that's how the process works. And it would usually take me a week to do one of these. Um, and usually the night before preaching would be a very long night because you'd be trying to, I'd be trying to gather all of the strains into a coherent story. And then that morning for the early morning mass crowd, I would preach the story um, frequently in laughter, frequently in tears. Um, and that would open the space for all of us of what, what it might like to have been with Jesus or even to have been Jesus. When people listened to your, your stories, I, I wonder about their reaction. And I wonder if this was an opportunity uh, 
for them to then go home and, and practice this imaginative prayer. What did you hear from folks as they were reflecting on your preaching? Um, well, we're a very vocal crowd at Xavier Parish, so I didn't have to wait long to hear. Um, <laughs> the first one that I ever did was um, on an Ascension Thursday, and it was, it was what Jesus felt leaving. And it was very easy to preach because, because Jesus is saying goodbye to people he loves, and I love the people at Savior Parish. Um, but there was an immediate response of gratitude and wonder at the invitation to think like Jesus thought and to feel like Jesus felt. And although as a Jesuit, I take that absolutely for granted as my birthright as a Jesuit to enter that space... Um, it opened that space for people. What was Jesus feeling? Um, and people were enormously responsive. I was frankly surprised that people, pe people sort of felt surprised that Jesus had an inner life. Um, I was surprised at that. But what it did was it meant that even if a given homily would go awry or off the rails, people were still grateful and happy because you were still entering that space. So it, it didn't matter much if the literary level was astonishingly high or shamefully low. We were trying to be inside Christ. And that was a very good place for us to be. And, and the Christ that you paint is so very tender, so very inclusive, uh, and also... Uh, just very human uh, in his grappling with the nonsense of everyday life. And it occurs to me, you know, in, in the life of Ignatius, right, this saint is, you know, on his, on his near deathbed, reflecting on, again, someone else's imaginative work on the life of Christ, right? And it changes him. You know, he's not Ignatius isn't reading the Gospels at first. He's reading this um, this other kind of interpretation. Um, so I wonder if you think about your book or the stories you tell as that opportunity for uh, renewed conversion or deeper conversion in the same tradition of, of St. Ignatius who encountered, you know, Christ as seen and interpreted through the eyes of someone else. Um, I, I'm not that bold. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have that kind of I don't have that kind of viewpoint on what I do, either in writing for television or in um, in preaching. You just you just try to be as true as you can possibly be, and and hope that 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 works. One thing I love about Ignatius is he started out loving storybooks. He fell in love essentially with Don Quixote. Um, you know, Amadis of Gaul was a knight he fell in love with. So during my formation, I made it a point to read Amadis of Gaul to get a sense of what he was what he was falling in love with. And it's all very swashbuckling and very romantic and riding into the challenges of of uh, early Renaissance life. And it's just wonderful. So that imaginative space that he had then transfers to Jesus. Um, and that's the step that I tried to do for myself, um, uh, to enter into Jesus's imagination. What do you think um, is the role and the importance of stories in the spiritual life? You know, as someone who's written for, for film and television and, um, and obviously this book, 
What, what, why are stories important? Well, let me ask you. I've read up a little bit, a bit about you. Tell me about Star Wars in your life. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet the listeners are going to love uh, love that. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I'll answer my own question, uh, assuming that you will then as well. Um, for, for me, stories like Star Wars, these epics, these sagas, um, you know, help me imagine a bigger world. Things are so much bigger uh, than what I can see on any given day. Um, and I think there's hope in that. I think there's hope in the bigness of things because God is so much greater. Uh, and so, of course, our stories are stretching us and pulling us out of ourselves uh, in a way that's, I think, a, a good spiritual practice. Perfect. <laughs> nothing to add no notes no nothing to add all i want to know is who's the, who which character in star wars are you closest to are you obi-wan are you yes. are you obi-wan not luke no yeah i, I love obi-wan kenobi he's the negotiator and then he fails ultimately right and he goes into exile and has that one last uh mission that he clings to tenaciously not that i've done that yet i don't know but I love that. Okay. Truth. Do you have a lightsaber? No, not one of those like expensive ones from Disney World, but uh, we have some toys lying around that my daughters uh, swing at each other. Well, it's it's that expansiveness of imagination is the thing that I love. And um, it's pretty much what I got. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I'm not an analytic thinker. I, story is where I live. Narrative is where I live. Um, so the question becomes, in the gospel, who do you associate yourself with? And I mean that as a real question. Who do you see yourself as in the gospel when you hear the gospel? Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on which gospel reading we're looking at. Um, I, I think for me, in my when I pray with scripture, um, it, it depends so much on where I am in that moment. You know, am I Martha? Am I Mary? Am I, uh, you know, feeling anxious about many things? Um, you know, am I am I pressed into service as, as Simon uh, Simon is, or am I more willing to 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 meet the needs of people? So I I don't have like a go to character in Scripture, but it's um, those are the kinds of questions that I think come out of my daily experience. Yeah, well, I would su I would suggest it would be worth investigating a go-to character. Um, like you associate with Obi-Wan, I certainly associate, associate with Don Quixote. Um, and I'm a Shakespeare director, so, so there's a lot of world expanding that comes from Shakespeare. But by associating, I don't think we're asked to associate with the gospel the way we're asked to associate with Star Wars. Um, in Star Wars, there's an immediate and emotional identification. Um, but I, I think there's a gap there when we get to the gospel. We sort of turn it into a lesson. At least that's my experience. It might not be the experience of your listeners or you. But what do we learn from the gospel? And we use the gospel to judge us. I'm not living up to the gospel. Um, what do we take away from the gospel? Um, I'm not sure that that's where the power lies. You know, I think the power lies, and Ignatius would push this, you talk to the people, talk to them, be with them, see what they have to say to you. And that jump from Star Wars to the gospel is one that has never been difficult for me. Um, it all blends. It's continuous. 
Who who do you associate with in the gospel? Um, well, I wrote this thing called the Diary of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so you are Jesus Christ. I know it's hubris, right? Hubris <laughs> on a massive scale. Nobody has pointed. Only one or two people actually have pointed that out to me. Um, but a friend of mine, a Jesuit friend of 50 years who died, and I'm still living in the shadow of his death, um, but he wrote a book called Story as a Way of Knowing. And his preaching was always, he was doing story preaching many, many years ago, but he would always take a minor character. You know, if he were telling the Star Wars saga, he'd tell it from the point of view of C-3PO. You know, he would pick the character actor. So his stories were always um, the most minor characters. Um, and they were very, very beautiful. But for some reason, I don't know, a long time ago, I had kind of a mystical experience where I fell into seeing the world through Jesus's eyes, um, a dual consciousness, his and mine. And, um, and that continues when I read the gospel. What do we look like to him? Um, what do things feel like? He's constantly being asked for things that push him to his limit. Um, and I frequently feel like I'm at my limit, either teaching or writing. What did it feel like for Jesus to not be able to perform a miracle? Because in the gospel, it says there are times he couldn't perform them. What does that feel like? Um, so that's I somehow fell into that. How much of Jesus's voice in this book is yours? Um I don't even know how to answer that question. <laughs> like when I'm writing a screenplay, <clears throat> every voice in it is the voice of the author, but the characters also have their own voices. Um, okay, would you mind if I read one of the stories? Please. This was the first. Let me open it up. And as I said, it's, it's, it's saying goodbye. And um, it's... It's what Jesus says um, as with the ascension. Hard to leave is the name of it. And the gospel text is he led them out to Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And as he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried into heaven. And in my world, Jesus says, I didn't know it would be this hard to leave. I have eternity behind me and all of eternity in front of me, all of it bliss, angels, seraphim, cherubim. What could 33 years have to offer me that I find so hard to leave? 33 years are nothing, though on some hot days a day could seem very long. It seems like yesterday when I first saw all of you. Peter, you wanted nothing to do with me. John, you were so young. You've grown so much in three years. And Magdalene. The first time I saw her, I was dazzled. And she wasn't even trying to dazzle. She was making no effort. And even then, she was beyond angels. The first time I saw her, I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. And every time after felt like the first time. You see, before her, I felt ordinary. She made me feel special, as if she saw something special in me. I asked her about this once. She said, it wasn't hard because it's true. I learned from her how to see people, how to really see them. Not just glance at them, but look into them. 
So every meaning, every meeting after that was a moment of stunned presence. What the angels feel towards me, I learned from her to feel towards you. And you, you are what is making it so hard for me to leave, all of you. Not just the people I've known all these years, the people I met once, the man born blind and his awful parents. Bartolomeus, son of Timaeus, shouting, son of David, have pity on me, making a nuisance of himself. Zacchaeus and his absurd tree, the Samaritan woman. So many that are dead now. How can I love all of this that is going to pass so fast and die? At least angels don't die. Magdalene explained to me that's why we love and why we love so hard and so deep, because a human life happens only once and goes away. She doesn't understand how it would even be possible to love an angel. Why bother? What would be the point? You make no difference to an angel. But a person, a person's life is short and towards the end. Love is like a river forced through a canyon. It becomes intense and fast and churning and wild. And that's what I'm feeling now, at this moment, looking at you. How can I possibly go? The Samaritan woman and her five husbands, I will miss them. They made a great party together. And by the way, the Good Samaritan story, it wasn't just a story. He was real. He took care of me when he found me crawling out of the desert, starved and dehydrated. Here, see, this is one of the coins that he gave me. I have always kept it. And now, as I rise, it won't rise with me. Its weight insists on staying on the earth, and it breaks my heart. I am rising. I am rising against my will. I am being glorified by my Father, and I find myself not for the first time shouting at you, but not with anger this time. I'm shouting, I won't leave you orphans. I will send you the Spirit, but that's not enough, I shout. In my Father's house there are many mansions. What a strange thing to shout. I've become a carpenter to my core. Huts, sheds, houses, mansions, mansions, many mansions, and I will fill them with you. How can I enjoy heaven if you weren't there with me? You who taught me who I am. Peter telling me I'm the Messiah. Thomas touching me and making me know that I'm risen. Magdalene. The problem with remembering the dazzle of the first time is that anything that has a first time has a last time. So go. Go now, go to the ends of the earth, bring them all to me. Find the shepherds, they must be old now. Find the Roman centurion who loved his servant, bring them to me. Heaven won't be heaven until you are all there with me. Heaven will not be complete without you. And I find myself making myself foolish, not for the first time, shouting like such an ordinary person, remember me, remember me, I will remember you. How could I ever forget you? So as I read that, or as I preach it, as I read it now, I'm looking straight at you. Um, and I'm looking at a young father of two young children. Um, and I think by trying to put on the mind of Christ or allowing myself to enter into that part of our mind that is Christ, um, I find myself loving you. And I find myself feeling moved, as I'm sure Christ would feel moved, um, at you and what you're doing with your life. Um, 
and that I think for me is what prayer is finally being being hubristic enough to step into the position where you can allow yourself to feel where I can allow myself to feel unembarrassedly his heart and when I'm doing it I'm protected by the story so I don't have to make it small talk I don't have to make it what's your major or what did you study at Fairfield it can go right to the part where there's something in me that loves and admires um, the person that you are and that's I think what meditation does this kind of contemplation does it gives you permission to be the Christ part of yourself I love that thank you for for reading that and I think that section and then your reflections afterward really capture something that I you know I, I just kept coming back to in the book and it it was exactly what you described this this idea of of Christ uh, you know contemplating and seeing um, the beauty in people um, unavoidably and I, I think there was one story again where the the blind man is 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 made to see and there's that beautiful dialogue where where he says to Jesus they don't know how beautiful they are and and Jesus says no no they don't and he says but you do and he says yes I, I do and and the blind man is able uh, to see that as well and, and I think that that's all kind of wound up in you know, both Jesus looking at us, but then also journeying through the story where Jesus is is learning from his mother. Um, and you have some wonderful scenes in there. It's just very real and and human, um, you know, learning. And then also his his deep friendship with with Magdalene and his frustration with the apostles. Um, but but what you read just now, I think, sums it up so well that he, he's caught up in the stuff of, of us, you know, he, 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 he's so enraptured by, uh, all of us. Um, yeah, I, 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 you, you, you spoke to it a little bit, but what, what do you say to people when they say, I want to, I want to go deeper into this life. I want to pray. I want to, I want to learn something of this prayer or, um, practice it more. I know it's it's not a you know better or worse kind of a thing, but it's uh, how do you invite people um, through these stories to then go home and do it? I don't. Um, as I told you, I'm not a deeply spiritual person in that sense. Um, uh, I think the st I let the story do its work, um, and I've been privileged because. Um, I've been able to make movies and then, you know, you meet people years later who have seen a, f a film of yours uh, on television and they tell you about it. And so the story does its work that way. Um, but I'm not I'm not a spiritual guide of any sort. I discovered long ago when it came to spiritual direction, there are two words, two sentences that come to my mind much too quickly, one of which is um, you know what your problem is. And the other is, you know what you should do. And those are the two things that should not be said in spiritual direction. So I avoid it. But I let the story do the work. I let, so Star Wars has done huge work. You know, um, you know, uh, 
the whole idea of the dark side and the whole idea of uniting yourself with the force. The gospel has that as well. But we don't treat it that way. We treat it as something to judge us or um, a lesson to learn. Can you, um, one of the stories that struck me, uh, one of the many, many stories, when, when, the, when Jesus is sending his disciples out on, on their, uh, their mission, and I love how you, you kind of turn on its head and it's, he's sick of them. Get out of here. Um, I, I wonder, it, 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 you know, old Jesuits go on pilgrimage as part of their formation, right? Your own pilgrimage, did that have anything to do with part of that story or, or even any, any part of this book? Um, the idea of kind of going out with one idea and coming back with having everything kind of turned on its head. That's every day of my life. <laughs> You've got kids. It must be that way with you, too. Uh, well, everything gets thrown on his head, that's for sure. Yeah. So um, pilgrimage, pilgrimages didn't happen when I was a novice. Um, the, uh, that, that came later. Um, my, I came of age in the, literally, between my first and second year of novitiate, the Vatican documents came out. And so I... I had one year of the old society, it could have been 1700, and one year of the new society in Novitiate, and all the way through my training. And pilgrimages came later. But, uh, but certainly many of the adventures, what comes to mind is I worked in a circus for a while. And so every day you would knock down the circus and move someplace else and perform. And that was a transformative experience. Um, and. Every day you discovered something new. Every day you discovered a different place, um, a different kind of magic. Making a movie is like that. You know, all of a, su all of a sudden you have a hundred people in all of these trucks and you put them up to tell your story, this little tiny thing that happens in a little, in a room or on a field. And every day you're surprised by what happens. Teaching sixth grade, God, every day. How... How do you understand um, kind of like the human person? And I, that, that, that question sounds insane, but but I, I feel like um, in your book, as you've alluded to, right? Jesus is is gazing at humanity, you know, through through eyes that are that are full of love. And so I'm I'm wondering what contributed in your life. What were the stories of your life, both lived and and consumed, that kind of helps you get to this point? Well, cer cer certainly there's a lot of my mother in Mary. Uh, and one line I think you pointed out, which is Mary looks at, whenever Mary is annoyed at Jesus when he's when he's young, she always says the same thing. You know, I wanted a girl. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that line could easily have come out of my mother. Um, uh, but both, both my parents were wonderful storytellers, as as is my brother. Um, the, st the story that if I had to pick a story that exemplified what I think storytelling does, it'd be Shaw's, George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan, um, which I had the privilege of directing when I was working at Boston Shakespeare Company um, with the wonderful Joan, Ursula Drobik. Um, but in the very first scene, um, Joan is just a peasant girl and she's claiming that she will raise the siege of Orleans and put the Dauphin on the throne. She will change the whole world. But to do it, first she needs a horse. So this peasant girl comes to this lord 
and says, you need to give me a horse. And he says, really, why? And she says, well, the voices tell me this. And he says, tell me about the voices. And she says, I'm not allowed to tell you about the voices, but they're the voices of angels. And I forget what angels, but Gabriel is in there. And he says to her, uh, Joan, these voices are your imagination. And she says, of course, how else do you expect God to speak to me? And when I read that, I was, I was finishing college and it knocked me on my butt um, because she didn't defend it. She didn't apologize for it. Um, that was what it was. The imagination is the voice of God. And Ignatius trusted that. I mean, it's amazing how much he trusted that. Um, but we don't trust ours. We hand it over to the movies. We hand it over to television. Um, but I don't think we take it home with us. Are you reading stories to your kids? Oh, yeah. What stories do they like? Uh, I mean, it's mostly like just kids' books and things. Tell me. Um, what did we just read last night? It was actually a Star Wars book last night. Um, Shame on you. I know. I'm the worst. <laughs> You're indoctrinating uh, your children. 100%. 100%. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there's actually... There's one beautiful book we got uh, right before my eldest started school. I forget what it's called, but um, the girl has butterflies in her stomach. And um, as the pages go on, th there are literal butterflies come out of her mouth. Whenever she speaks, she's nervous um, or, or she's worried they're going to call on her or she doesn't want to leave her parents. And uh, the butterflies come out. It's, it's so it's very cute. Um, and she is able to kind of master that. And then she sees another little girl who's got her hands on her stomach and she goes to her and are there butterflies in your stomach? And the girl goes, yes. And they, they go out <laughs> and she helps her to, uh, to work through that. But, but the ending, I, I cried both the first two times I read it because the little girl goes home to her mother and, um, Yes, how was the first day of school? And, oh, mom, it was a great dad. So much fun. And the mom says, I'm so glad. And a single butterfly escaped from her mouth. And I, and like both, I knew it was coming the second time. Uh, and I was like, this is, uh, is this beautiful. I know you didn't ask me to, um, no, no, to I recap the story. No, that's exactly what I want. And I will, uh, that, that I will was, rush That's out. one of our favorites right now. And do you, will she read it more than once? Oh, Yeah. We've, okay. we've read it multiple times a day, and that we just got it a month ago. <laughs> see, see, I think, and I will look the book up. I think that's prayer. You know, I think that's what prayer is. But we don't, we don't allow it. To, that it certainly was that for Ignatius. We don't allow the gospel to work that way. And thank you for telling the story. It's wonderful, and it's wonderful to watch you, since this is visual and we're seeing one another. It's wonderful to watch you tell the story, because you become the girl, and your hands begin to move, and the butterflies come out of you. And that's great beauty. And, uh, and that's, I think, what living in the story of Christ allows to happen. You, you're allowed to be there for a while. You have the permission to be Christ. As a priest, although not a very good one, um, when you say Mass or do a sacrament, it's the same as the children's book you just described. You're given permission to say, this is my body for you which would be a very difficult thing um, to, may, maybe it isn't that difficult, but it's an act of love that you're allowed, that you're allowed to perform, even with people that you've never met before. Um, same thing with, I can remember hearing, hearing confessions in a prison and telling a young man, 
um, that he was forgiven for the murder he had committed. Um, I have no power to do that. You know, I'm a kid from Queens, New York, but Christ has the power to do that. And in this particular case, I could feel the forgiveness happening. I could feel himself reassembling himself from inside. I could, he I could, I could see him hearing those words. Um, and entering into the person of Christ gives us that permission. Holy Thursday night, when you're allowed to wash other people's feet, you know, it'd be awkward at a dinner table, but suddenly in the ritual, you're allowed to. Um, and this method of thought, this method of prayer, this method of preaching gives us the same permission that you have with your daughter to allow butterflies to come out of your mouth. I'm going to go back uh, as the day is going now. There's something you said about kind of the story gives us permission. A story gives us cover. Uh, and as we live through those stories, I, I want to just, just one kind of final category of question here. One of the things that I, again, took from your book, um, and Jesus says this again and again, um, this idea that who, who knows what miracles we have hidden within us. You know, Jesus is performing his miracles, but he never says, I'm the only one who can do this. And, and there's miracles hidden, hidden within. Oh, say something about that, because it, it really struck me. And uh, um, I just, yeah, say, yeah, say it's, more. It's, it's, it's interesting because, because that, that line has been quoted to me a number of times, and it, it is not for me a foundational weight-bearing kind of line. It turns up in the story that you mentioned before, where um, the blind man who is a boy in my version of the story um, says, I want to see. And um, Jesus is reluctant to attempt a miracle because he has been attempting them and they haven't been working. Um, and there's nothing, as he says in a different story, more embarrassing than a miracle that doesn't work. Um, and the boy says to him, um, if you'll give me a second, let me actually get the story. Sure. Because... Oh, dear. Something I should have done a long time ago. Beggar at the gate. Blind Bart. 114. This story is the closest to my friend who introduced me to this method of preaching. This is uh, very much like what he would do because it's a lot about a minor character. It's mostly mm. about the minor character. Um, I ask him what he wants from me, and his face shows me shows that he thinks I'm an idiot. He says, I want to see. I am exhausted. I know I don't have a miracle in me. And I explain that to him. I explain that I don't want to raise his hopes. He says, but you don't know there's no miracle in you, do you? You're afraid of trying. You're afraid people will laugh. Why should that bother you? Some of these people, none of these people have ever tried a miracle. Who knows what miracles lay within them undone for lack of trying? Why be afraid of their laughter? And the crowd's laughter fades. Their eyes are on me. Son of David, he says. Not loud now, quietly, just for me. Son of David, have pity on me. His blind eyes face me for a moment, and then he lowers his head and he waits. What could I do? I close my eyes and I pray to my father, father of David, have pity on him. Have pity on Bartimaeus. 
have pity on us all. And I cry out and I cry out and I cry out and I cry out until I cry, but I get no answer, only laughter. All I can hear is laughter. And I wonder if the people are openly laughing at me. Has it come to this? They've been discreet till this point. But when I open my eyes, I see the laughter is not directed at me. Bartimaeus is running like a crazy person from man to woman to man to woman trying to figure out who is who. He can see and everyone is laughing. Even I am laughing, though, as I see now, not everyone is. A woman is crying because Bartimaeus is telling her how unimaginably beautiful she is. And she's crying because she's an old woman now. And on the best day of her life, she probably wasn't anybody's idea of beauty. But he insists. And now everyone is weeping except Bartimaeus. He stops in the middle of the circle that has formed around him. He looks at me puzzled and he says, they don't know, do they? I say, what? He says, how beautiful they are. I say, no, they don't. He asks, you do? I say, yes, I do. Then after a moment, he says, well, let's get going. And I ask him where. He says, I'm going to follow you, of course. I laugh, what, would that, what good would that do? One blind beggar following another. No, stay here. And do what, he asks, carpentry? I say, if you like, it doesn't matter what. Be a carpenter, be a beggar if you like, but keep looking at them, seeing their beauty and letting them see their beauty through you. That's what I've been trying to do for three years, but I haven't done it as well as you have done in three minutes. I look at him with my tired eyes and he looks at me with his fresh, one, fresh ones and I know what he's thinking. And I wonder, too, what miracles wait undone within me. Beautiful. I, um, that scene just uh, paints a picture, and I, I want to um, make one additional comment, uh, because I know you're friends with uh, Father Greg Boyle of Homeboy Industries, and also who wrote uh, the foreword to your book, um, and as I was reading, you know, this book and I've, I've read, uh, some of Father Boyle's works, um, you know, this is the Jesus, uh, that, that leaps out of the pages of, of, of his, of his books as well. Can you share any reflection on, uh, you know, your time spent with him or, or any of that work? Cause it just, it just feels, um, like I could so easily take your book and drop it into uh, his reflections and everything would just connect perfectly. Uh, well, well I, I st Greg, Greg, as you say, wrote the introduction to the book and uh, I steal one of his trademark lines. Jesus is talking to the person who turns out to be Judas and says, if you were my son, I'd be the proudest man alive. And I put Jesus's words into Greg's mouth. Um, or Greg's words into Jesus's mouth, or both ways. Um, Gre Greg, first time I met Greg, um, many, many years ago, I just walked through East LA with him, and people just poured out of the buildings just to be with him, just walking through the streets. And that's what Greg carries with him. Um, a complete openness, and an openness that's grown over the years, as he'll say. 
I keep trying to convince him that there are some people we should leave out of the circle of kinship. (laughs) (laughs) How does that go? (laughs) Uh, He's unwilling to accept that for some reason, Uh, but that will give you a sense of our relative levels of understanding of life. He wants everybody included. I still have certain dark parts of my heart where I say, maybe not him. Bill, any uh, what's next? What are your next projects? Anything else you want to anything you want to pitch while you're here? You have a captive audience. Um, I have another book that I'm trying that I'm trying to put together, which is um, that I've written that I'm now trying to clean up, but I'd like to get published. Which is called How to Write a New Book for the Bible, and the oh. I, the idea is I did it as a play, but the idea is to investigate your family history. The question is why does the Bible end? You know, the Bible is the story of a family, God manifesting God's presence. The story goes on. How does it manifest in your family? And so there's a project I'll pitch. If there's any publisher out there who might be interested, give a shout. I like it. That sounds good to me. Bill Kane, thank you so much for joining us today. What a pleasure to talk to you. It was fun. We'll do it again. Take care. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.